Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. Andrew Weiss is here. He is the James Family Chair, Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He oversees research in Washington and Moscow on Russia and Eurasia. Before that, he served in policy roles at the National Security Council, the State Department, and the Pentagon, most notably during the Clinton administration, working directly under uh, Sandy Berger. And he wrote this nonfiction graphic novel. We always say graphic novel. Even in the, in the notes that I got sent from the, from the PR people, it says graphic novel. Even though it's not a novel, it's called Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. And so it's a biography of Putin uh, with illustrations by Brian Box Brown, who's this really amazing uh, graphic illustrator who's produced a lot of graphic work, you know, this kind of thing, nonfiction graphic novels on his own. It's really a terrific book, a great look at, you know, the life of Putin, but in a way that I think everybody can kind of really get into and understand and kind of, dare I say, enjoy. It also, as I say in the interview, the, the blurbs for this book, I mean, <laughs> you know, a blurb is like that little thing that's on the book that says, somebody says, this is a good book you know, William Shakespeare or whatever. And he's got some really heavy hitters uh, endorsing this thing. Madeleine Albright, Max Boot, Michael McFall, uh, Fiona Hill, David Frum. And then he's got Gary Steingart, who, who wrote um, Super Sad True Love Story, which is a wonderful, wonderful book and absurdistan and um, fantastic. And I agree. I agree with the blurbs. This is, a, this is a really good book. And if you're looking to just get a better understanding of who Putin is and what he's all about and how he became the Vladimir Putin and the, 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 the loathsome, horrifying, awful dictator that we all 
can't stand today. Um, it's really a great uh, primer for that. I think you know, kids could read it and, and walk away with some some better understanding of, of this monster who is at the center of everything right now in geopolitics. So I encourage you to, uh, to go check that book out. We have an awesome conversation. It was really great to, uh, to have him on. I guess Ukraine and Russia is the theme this week for Prevail. On Tuesday on my uh, Substack, I, I had Zarina Zabriskie write a piece about the liberation of Kherson, which is the city in eastern Ukraine that was occupied by Russians for nine months. And then they left. You know, the Ukrainians um, have been slowly, systematically um, repulsing the, the, the Russian occupiers. And Zarina was able to get there. You know, she's she's an independent journalist working in Ukraine. She's got credentials from a bunch of different places. She got onto one of the three Soviet-era rickety buses that were going to the city, went there and, you know, just talked about, in, in this particular piece, it was a, a personal piece about all of her impressions. Remember, Zarina is, a, is also a novelist and a short story writer. She's a very literary person. So this is more of a literary piece. I mean, there's a lot of reportage too, but it's it has a real literary feel to it. So um, if you haven't checked that out, I encourage you to do so. Um, you know, really a remarkable story of this liberation. And, you you know, you just stop and think like this shit is happening. Like these guys were just living their lives. And then these monsters came in, you know, not to say that it could happen to anybody. But, you know, I don't think they necessarily thought the people living in Kherson thought that this was going to happen. And yet it did, you know. And uh, I don't know, from my perspective, it's just, you know, we really have to, you know, not take for granted the freedoms that we have. And we have to fight for the freedoms that we enjoy. And I think that's another, you know, thing that we have to keep in mind because this fascist bullshit is is just everywhere and on the rise. I mean, you look at Germany, you know, there was a a coup attempt. Um, These right-wing fascists were going to, you know, basically storm the Reichstag, which is their parliament building. And do their own little J6. One of the, one of the guys involved was a, a lesser German noble named Heinrich the 13th, which sounds like something from a bad science fiction, but I guess he's a real dude. Incredible that somebody who is a, a royal from a forgotten bloodline would be a conservative and want to, you know, bring back the, the monarchy. Um, yeah, the last time the Germans had a monarchy, it did not end well. That guy was a fucking loser and uh, largely responsible for the massive uh, failures of World War I. So, you know, good on the German uh, secret police and everybody else that arrested these assholes before things got bad there. So, uh, but again, this shit is happening. We have a, a weird moment in the world where in places like Iran and even in China, you know, people rising up to take on authoritarian regimes. And then in places like the United States, a sizable amount of the population wants to be ruled over by some fucking moron dictator. So everything is a topsy-turvy right now. It sure feels that way. And, you know, how did it get this way? Well, one of the one of the uh, the prime movers for the current geopolitical space is Vladimir Putin um, and his decision to invade Ukraine, his horrible decision to invade Ukraine. We talk about why he did it now rather than when Trump was president, which was something I was always curious about and what his motivations really are, what he's really like, all that stuff. You know, fascinating conversation with Andrew Weiss. One last thing, you know, I I read the other day. It's now Thursday. It's Thursday as I'm recording this, the 8th of December. I think it was yesterday morning. I woke up to the news about the daughter of Ted Cruz, who's 14 and apparently tried to you know, commit suicide or at least to harm herself. 
and uh, it really depressed me. I, I just feel really bad for her. I feel bad for him and, and his wife and that whole family. And, you know, it can't be easy for any of them to live in the public eye. And, you know, I, I think Ted Cruz is obviously one of the worst people that we have going in politics, but he's still a human being. And, you know, it's hard to, to function that way, to be a public figure in that way. And it must be hard on, on the families. So uh, I just want to say, you know, hopes and prayers out to uh, to that family and that I hope that she's OK and that she can recover from this and and go on to, uh, you know, to do great things uh, with her life. I wish that, you know, I went and read all the comments on Twitter from people that I follow who are largely on the left side of the aisle. And, you know, there's nothing but hopes and prayers and and uh, and well wishes. And it would be nice if, you know, maybe if this was a Hallmark Christmas movie that Ted Cruz was able to learn something from that and not do the opposite when bad things happen to his political rivals, to the family of his political rivals. So anyway, just wanted to get that in. And I, I mean it sincerely. It did, it did actually affect me emotionally. And I feel bad for her and I feel bad for the whole family. And, you know, I just hope everybody gets better, man. So without further ado, we'll be right back with Andrew Weiss. HBO presents. Whenever I stay at a White Lotus, I always have a memorable time. Always. From writer-director Mike White. Human sex drug traffickers should not be allowed to cross our borders. Just take a look at California. The third season of the beloved series comes home. I heard a lot of commotion down here. I said, who the hell is that? To the most exclusive resort yet. There's a lot of things that I love about Hitler. A lot of things. White Lotus 3, Mar-a-Lago. At some point, he is going to approach you with some kind of money-making scheme or some kind of favor or something. There's a reason they invited us here. Andrew Weiss, welcome to Prevail Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Greg. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you because, uh, as we were saying quickly before the break, you've written this book called Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin, as opposed to Life and Times. Um, and it's a, I was, you always like to say graphic novel, but it's not a novel. So it's a graphic book that's sort of this history of his life and his rise to power and I think it's it's fantastic because it really explains so succinctly and well and engagingly what's going on with this guy, who he is, where he came from, um, his touch points to Russian literature, why he's so obsessed with Ukraine, all, all of it. But in a way, I think that, you know, people can really quickly understand. So congratulations on that. It's really it's really wonderful. Thank you. It's really gratifying to hear that kind of feedback. Not, I mean, for me, look, you've got blurbs here. This is the most I when I got. I got sent this and the blurbs list, this is the most impressive blurb list I've ever seen. You've got Fiona Hill, David Frum, Max Boot, um, Michael McFall, Madeline Albright, and then Gary Steingart, as if you need like icing on the cake, right? Because he's <laughs> a great novelist, uh, funny as, as hell. Um, so I think the book is terrific, but I, I want to talk about the book. I want to talk about Putin. I want to talk about all this stuff. Before we get there, tell us a little bit about you. You have a fascinating background. Um, as I glean from reading the intro to the book, you're born in Beverly Hills, but somehow wind up not just with a front row seat, but 
you know, you're you're marching around as a player on the stage as the Soviet Union falls. Yeltsin is there and then Putin comes into power. So talk a little bit about about your background and where, you know, what you bring to this project. Yeah, so I, I'm a child of the 80s. I grew up in Southern California. And, you know, people from Beverly Hills tend to be really embarrassed about coming from Beverly Hills. So we always say, like, I'm from the West Coast or something like that. So I um, so I still, my wife still teases me about that because I did that to her when we first met. Um, the, you know, the Soviet Union was around. It was a big issue when I was growing up because we Reagan was president. But the coolest thing, one of the coolest things that happened to me when I was in high school is a friend of my older brother's had dinner with us one night and he had just come back from studying in the Soviet Union. And I thought that was the most wild, crazy thing anyone on the planet could have done. And first day of college, I threw myself into studying Russian because A, I really didn't like Beverly Hills and B, this was the big issue of the day because Gorbachev had already become the Soviet leader and the Soviet Union was opening up. So for me, as a young person, it was similar to like studying, I don't know, COVID or wanting to be an epidemiologist or studying China or cyber threats. You know, it was it was the preeminent issue of the day. And when I finished grad school, I got my first job at the Pentagon in summer of 1991. And I just had and I, I really want to correct one thing you said, Greg, which is I was not a player on the stage. I was a staffer. And so, I mean, you were you were you were on the stage, though. You weren't because I, I was writing down my notes saying you have a front row seat. Working as a staffer is not is you weren't a spectator. You were doing stuff. So Correct. And so I spent the 90s, which is this immediate period of the Soviet collapse, working in a series of policy staff jobs at the Pentagon, at the State Department, and then ultimately at the White House. And the White House job was the pinnacle of my career because I was the Russia resident expert on the National Security Council staff, which is a small unit of people who coordinate foreign policy activities across the U.S. government on behalf of the president and his national security team. And then you also staff the president and the national security advisor for their interactions. And so I was the person writing the talking points or the first draft of the talking points for things like phone calls between the two heads of state. And it was the period when I was working there that Putin came on the scene and shot through the ranks first as Russia's national security advisor, then as prime minister, and then ultimately as president. And it was a really interesting period in U.S.-Russian relations because we had a series of crises, which at the time felt like as bad as it could possibly be. Obviously, the war in Ukraine is like millennia worse right. than that, you know, but we can talk about that. So um, now you did you start when Clinton was there? You you weren't there for Bush one yet. No, no, I, I was a career civil servant working as a civil servant in the Pentagon's policy apparatus under Bush 41 under okay. President George H.W. Bush. And my first bosses there were really it was an interesting I'm sorry to get a little sidetracked, but it was a different period in U.S. foreign policy because there was a split in the Bush 41 administration between, on the one hand, uh, General Scowcroft and Secretary of State Baker, who wanted to basically keep Gorbachev around, do these big arms control deals, and kind of manage things like German reunification. And on the other hand, Dick Cheney, Paul Wolfowitz, and the others who I was then working for who really believed that the opportunity was to get rid of the Soviet Union as a peer competitor, and that we should encourage Yeltsin and the other leaders of the constituent republics of what was then the Soviet Union to bring the Soviet collapse about more quickly. Okay, that's that's fascinating. I I, I think uh, I get 
probably guff from the people listening to the podcast. I think the first you know, Bush 41 was a good president. And uh, it's interesting to see how the the decision that he made there kind of carried over into, uh, you know, wh- what happened, <laughs> what followed and, and everything else. I mean, you you do a good job talking about a lot of this historical stuff in the recent historical stuff in, in the book, which I think is fascinating. Now, if I could just tag on to that, Greg, mm-hmm. though, just one small point is what's really interesting is all of the ideas that infused what ultimately became the agenda to get rid of Saddam Hussein yes. were sort of were sort of crash tested with this debate on whether we should try to bring down the Soviet system. And so you see some of the sort of same people who become really important later on sort of cut their teeth on those kinds of ideas in the Bush 41 administration. Which is interesting because the the, the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, um, I think was done well i've talked about it a bunch on the podcast in terms of the the whole idea of appeasement and dictators trying to take over sovereign states and how we can't allow that to happen um that was almost a template for what you should do and what obama and and subsequent people have not done when when putin tried to you know when putin invaded crimea in in 14 so um it's interesting that out of that that white house group that successfully did this thing in the first gulf war they you know, took it in a different in a different direction. Now, I've had I've been doing the podcast for a while. I've had I've had a lot of different kinds of people on, but I believe you're the first person that I've talked to who has actually met Putin, because you were right. You were in the room with him with uh, yeah Sandy Berg. So, okay, apart from all the politics and all the we all know about that stuff, what was he like in person? What was your impression of him? So this is a pretty early period of Putin's exposure at the highest levels. Um, initially, the dealings with him were between my uh, then boss, the National Security Advisor, Sandy Berger, when they were opposite numbers. And there were a series of sensitive issues that White House was working on with the Kremlin at the time. A lot of them had to do with Iran and questions about what might have been happening between the Russians and the Iranians on building their nuclear program and their ballistic missile program. And then the war in Kosovo happened, and there was a lot of intensive dealings with the Kremlin on managing the fallout from the the U.S. war in the Balkans. And the, the Putin who we were dealing with then is not in any way recognizable to the Putin who has now been around 20 plus years. He has more seniority, I think, on the international stage than any leader other than Joe Biden, who obviously has been around for 50 plus years in public life. So what's striking is now Biden has kind of raised the US game on how to handle Putin. But back then, the the stature gap was in the other direction, where you had people like Bill Clinton, who were incredibly polished and writing, you know, like, this is the end of the Clinton second term, who've done it all, who've negotiated and managed really complicated situations and complicated people. And Putin was really outgunned in these settings by the Western leaders he he was facing. Um, The Putin we were dealing that that, sorry, the the Putin whom we were dealing with back then was also really eager to please and had a, a desire to come across as compliant and supportive. But there was deep skepticism on our side about who he was. And there was real worry that this is the person who's going to unravel all of these 
things Russia has accomplished in the 1990s in terms of adopting some basic democratic norms, trying to integrate into the Western mainstream, et cetera, et cetera. And so people looked at Putin's background and they looked at his initial actions with considerable alarm. And there were initial signs at the very early days of Putin when he was named prime minister and then became Yeltsin's successor as Russia's president that, oh God, this is going nowhere good. And people were were really worried that he was not a politician, like he wasn't going to be able to run this place effectively. He had no sign of kind of the larger than life personality that we now ascribe to him. And that's a big part of why I wrote the book, was to kind of show people that transformation and how, last point, a lot of the image of Putin as kind of a superhero, Arnold Schwarzenegger, action hero kind of guy, was something that was totally concocted by the Kremlin very early on in his tenure to make him seem like something he wasn't. Yeah, which again, you do a great job talking about that in the book. There's a panel, because um, again, it's a great, people listen, it's a graphic, I, I, you want to say novel, it's a graphic, non-fiction, whatever. a graphic novel, Greg, that's fine. Okay, I know. It's but a it, non-fiction graphic novel. A non-fiction graphic novel, there you, there you go. Okay. It, <laughs> so there, where, where you find out, you know, that he's going to be the next guy and Clinton's on the phone thinking, oh God. And that's, you know, this who is this, who is this person? But in person, though, um, was he polite? Was he quiet? What, did he have a weird handshake? Was he was palm sweating? <laughs> what was he like? Well, he was much, you know, he's he's a, a person of small stature. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, is something that, that people also lose sight of. He's he's about the same height as, as Napoleon Bonaparte. He's about 5'7". Yeah. And they do a lot to kind of cover that up when they take pictures of him and things like that to make him seem more imposing than he is. Back then, Bill Clinton was about, I think, 6'2". And, yeah. you know, at that time, he's a big guy. Um, there was, you know, just obvious, you know, stature gap in literal terms. Oh, the other thing you noticed about Putin in this period is as a former intelligence operative, people in the current moment always think of that as this kind of cool thing that makes someone seem super formidable. Um, a lot of Soviet intelligence operatives were not super formidable. They come across as very obsequious and like telling you things you want to hear and being ingratiating in ways that aren't really warranted. And, you know, one of the examples that's in the book that's kind of funny is when in an early meeting, the person who was the Russia czar of Clinton foreign policy was uh, my boss, Strobe Talbot, who was then the number two at the State Department. And in one of the early meetings with Putin, Putin sort of throws out a reference to Fyodor Chuchev, the the Russian romantic poet who had been the subject of Strobe Talbot's uh, senior thesis at Yale. And it was just completely gratuitous. And it was as if like, we're all supposed to get a warm and fuzzy feeling because you know what the guy wrote his senior thesis on at Yale. I mean, it it just, there's a lot of that in the early days of dealing with Putin. Um, And you still see it at times where there's a certain desire for Putin to seem more like I know it. I'm. I got this. I got all these facts. I'm really substantive, and he over 20 years he has gotten increasingly well versed, and he knows the details quite well. But back then, it really felt like a, a far more superficial approach. I think he's much more formidable now by dint of having done this for more than two decades. Yeah, and he's yeah. a people. He's a capable guy. I mean, he reads his briefing materials, and we saw this in the meetings. He had with Donald Trump, where Trump totally flew by the seat of his pants, and Putin really studies hard. 
Yeah, you could tell that. That that that's for sure. How is his? Does he speak English well, or do you, not that that could change in twenty years? But I don't think his English is bad. Um, it's certainly better than most Western leaders' Russian. I'm trying to think if there are any recent Western leaders who spoke fluent Russian. No one is coming to mind except for Angela Merkel. Like Merkel had been a a, a good Russian student um, in her youth, but you know the the. The thing that Putin was really good at, of course, was speaking German. Right. And yeah. that was a big part of his calling card in how he presented himself in Europe in the early days, that, you know, he's going to be a transformational leader. And given the the really terrible history between Russia and Germany, it made a huge difference in German policy and how the German elite viewed him. And that now has you know blown up as a result of the war in Ukraine. Yeah, totally. So getting into the book a little bit, I... A lot of the stuff that you read about, I knew, and people listening to this will know. But a lot, of, I learned a lot of things, and and the way that you approached certain events, I think, was you know just done really well. Just um, the way it it flowed, and you, it's not completely linear. You you do a little bit of of back and forth and stuff like that, and um, you know, which I think is uh, a really effective way of telling the story. And the art is really cool. Like each chapter, it's like black and white, but there's one color each chapter that sort of stands out. So it's red in one chapter and then yellow in another and orange in another. And it looks, you know, it looks cool. Um, what was your, how, how did you conceive of the idea to to write it this way as a graphic novel? I um, am a graphic novel nerd, but, you okay. know, I, there are a couple of books that I really, really love um, and that, you know, tackle hard subjects. You know, the most obvious ones are things like Mouse by Art, um, by Spiegelman or um, Persepolis by uh, Soriana uh, Mar Marajan Satrapi. Um, you know, I'm not an artist, though. And so being able to collaborate with someone as brilliant as Brian Box Brown is what made this project so rewarding. And Brian, for the people listening who don't know him, has never drawn someone else's book. He himself is a formidable graphic novel writer, and he's done these really interesting books that were quite successful on subjects like Andre the Giant, Andre the Giant, um, Andy Kaufman, the actor, the history of Tetris. Um, and his books are different than a lot of the sort of 80s, 90s stuff that I grew up reading because they're airy and they're minimalist. And he has this unusual style where it's a lot more like representative than literalistic. And so it doesn't really call out the noir feel or the things that you think of like Watchmen and those kinds of, yeah. you know, kind of throwbacky uh, to the heyday of DC Comics and Dick Tracy that dominate a lot of the aesthetics these days. What he does is really unusual. And the fact of our collaboration that was the best part was when I was writing the scenes is I would say to him, no visual cliches, like we cannot have bears and matryoshka dolls on every page like it's got to be something different and precisely because of his you know stylized rendering it totally doesn't look like a regular graphic novel it looks really unique yeah it look and even the way that he draws the the people is you know the guy putin looks like putin but he doesn't look exactly like putin he looks like the putin that's the the main character of the story which i think is it's it's a good choice and it's you know it's exactly. it's, uh, it's well done. So Brian's a genius. He, yeah. he really is a genius. 
Yeah. When I finish reading, I'm like, I think I want to get this book and get, make my kids read it because, uh, you know, they'll learn the whole, you know, they won't listen to me, but maybe they'll, <laughs> you know, in this form. So um, one of the, one of the things that um, you talked about the Russian history and uh, to me, it's just fascinating how that place has been just under the thumb of some tyrannical, awful person for basically since it was founded. Um, but I didn't really realize that uh, what you point out that since, you know, the times of the grand princes and Ivan the Terrible was the last grand prince and the first czar. But before then, um, they you say they lived, they owned all the property, literally, and everybody just had to pay to, you know, exist on it. And uh, it's interesting how that kind of turns into the communist system. There's a an obvious through line there uh, where it's and it's always been, the, you know, kind of the same way. Um, and as you point out, the way that that system is in just completely infused or, or or intertwined with the culture, um, it creates this system where people are constantly having to what we would call bribe, but it's really just pay tribute to the people up the food chain and so on and so on. And that's still the way that it is now with Putin and the cronies in Russia. Yeah. And part of this is due to the fact that for two centuries, Russia was ruled by the Mongols and the, the deal they cut with the Mongols was that they would pay this annual tribute and they were based the princes were left alone and the mongols didn't colonize them in the same way um that that you would imagine being ruled by a foreign uh entity the way that the mongols ruled russia with the other issue that that comes up a lot in our pop culture and our kind of political discourse about russia is this idea that there are these oligarchs and that you know there are these secret figures around the throne and that those guys, if one day they're all angry enough, can somehow march into Putin's office and say, we hate the criminal war you're pursuing in Ukraine, knock it off because we're all less rich today. And that Putin will somehow magically be like, oh God, this is you know existential for me that you guys all hate me now. Um, you know, the idea that Russia has had essentially fewer guarantees of property means that for all those guys who surround the throne, who do do quite well by being loyalists, they all know they're replaceable. And they all know that the czar can reallocate um, their holdings. And Putin uses that as leverage over them and makes them aware of it, that you know they're, they're existing at his sufferance. They're not there freestanding in the way that you know the CEO of General Motors is or someone like that in our system. And I think we always pin a lot of our hopes on the idea that something's going to happen where someone will, you know, steer Putin in a different direction. And the the story that is, you know, that's at the heart of the book is how much it's his whims, his misguided understanding, and most importantly, his grievance and his sense that the West is out to get him that has put us on this confrontational collisionaire, uh, you know, head-on collision right now. It's interesting. You, at one point, you say that the Russians have a constant siege mentality, and that that's, permeates sort of everything they do, which is what you're seeing. I think, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the 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 current situation in the war is that, you know, Putin's always carrying on like everybody in the West wants to invade Russia and take over Russia. And it's like, dude, we do not care about your stupid country. We don't want Russia. You can keep it. It's not because if there was ever a moment where NATO and the Western alliance would invade Russia, 
it would be now when like 75 of his percent of his military is completely destroyed but you don't see people like you don't see people lining up to do that nobody's nobody's like great you know he's his defenses are down let's go invade you know st petersburg because we're not going to do that it's it doesn't you know it's it's a fantasy yeah part of this is there's there's interesting levels of it um so we talk about the paranoia part and we'll talk about the invading part so on the invading part NATO has been a really convenient boogeyman for the Russian leadership because what they've wanted to say to the Russian people is we're surrounded and we're a besieged fortress. There are all these enemies and they've amplified in people's minds both the existence of the enemies as well as the grievance against them as a way of getting people to consolidate support for Putin. So it's a it's a very effective way of telling low information people inside Russia you know, there's only one path for Russia to su survive, and it's, you know, throw your support behind Vladimir Putin. The other part of this, which is real, and I think should not be discounted, because especially in the, the uh, you know, the wake of all the, the setbacks to Russia's conventional military that's on the battlefield in Ukraine and unfolding before us, is the sense that they truly believe that the end goal of U.S. policy is regime change, and that we are seeking nothing less than Vladimir Putin's ouster. And the way they believe that that would come about in their minds is through some form of spontaneous grassroots protest that the secret hand of the United States and Western tech firms and NGOs will all sort of you know, come together to achieve. And they've seen that unfold over the last 20 plus years in a series of what they call color revolutions. Right. And that is for them, and Ukraine is the most vivid illustration of this with the revolution in 2014 on the Maidan, that that's what the US is seeking in Russia. And that that is real. And the fear of that, I think, is why, in part, people are, this is in the book, people are so worried about escalating this crisis with Russia over Ukraine, because if, if Putin really believes that he's going to end up like Gaddafi at the end of this, he may do desperate, dangerous things. And this will not just be a question of how many hectares of eastern Ukraine does Russia control on any given day. Yeah, yeah. It means that it was well, ironic because if he just left left everything alone, we wouldn't be for regime change. But now he's almost made it inevitable because Ukraine's not going to lose the war. We're not going to let him take over Ukraine. And, you know, that's it. I mean, how does he even come back from this politically on, on an international stage? I mean, he was, well, there was a conference, I think, in Bali that now he's not going to because he can't. I mean, he can't show his face anywhere anymore, not with not with this stuff. So it's interesting. That it's almost this Greek tragedy of, uh, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy with this guy. Um, I want to go, I want to get back to the book and start at the, towards the beginning to the early years, because uh, that's another thing that I learned a lot that I didn't know about. But before we do, we have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Andrew Weiss. I'm Allison Gill. That's AG from Muller She Wrote in the Daily Beans, the premier podcaster for all things special counsel. And I'm Andrew McCabe, former acting director of the FBI and unlucky guy who was right in the middle of getting Robert Mueller appointed special counsel in 2017. And we're joining forces to document the investigations of Trump by the newly appointed special counsel Jack Smith as it happens. Whether it's analyzing court filings, letters, indictments, or prosecution and defense strategies. Or asking questions 
questions about special counsel regulations, rules governing classified documents at trial, or the scope of the probes. We'll be here first thing Sunday mornings to cover the latest breaking special counsel news and answer your questions with the assistance of some of the best experts out there. So follow, rate, and subscribe to Jack wherever you get your podcasts. Your only source for all things special counsel. Okay, we're back with Andrew Weiss, um, author of Accidental Czar. I like how you set the book up with with the early Putin's, Putin years because um, there's also a lot of mythology around that. I think a lot of the you know the struggling through growing up in St. Petersburg and the poor and up in the ranks, and maybe his father was the chef for somebody. And we're not sure if that's true, but um, the the story that you tell in the book is basically this is a guy who. Um, you know, his parents definitely came from, you know, not a lot of money. Um, his, his father came back from the front and his mother was so sick that they were dragging her off, like in the Monty Python movie while she was still alive. <laughs> right. And he was like, what are you doing? That she's fine. And, uh, you know, if they had only dragged her off, Putin wouldn't be alive right now because he was born after this. Um, but the, the, the portrayal is of him as just kind of this angry hoodlum, um, you know, kind of almost just like a a street thug. Is that, would you say that's accurate? How would you, tell us a little bit about his early life. Yeah, so people like Putin's parents endured the most horrible thing imaginable in the siege of Leningrad in which yeah. more than a million people died of starvation and resorted to things like boiling leather belts to survive and find something to eat and you know eating the glue off the back of wallpaper i mean this is this is beyond the beyond stuff and putin has an older brother he never met who died um in an orphanage because he was taken away from the family so that he would have enough to eat and he dies of diphtheria and is buried in a mass grave this is a raw yeah. and major uh thing that hangs over everyone in russia because you know, the soviet union famously lost 27 million people in world war ii and putin grew up in the 50s and 1960s in a working class family with no great advantages um in terms of material or insider track and he was kind of a a kid hanging out too much in the courtyard of his apartment building and got into a lot of trouble. And his parents, you know, were not convinced that he was going to break out of that embrace of the streets. He, at some point in his high school years, got really into studying German and studying judo. And it was those two things that gave him some direction. The other thing that gave him a lot of direction was when he was in ninth grade, he was a fan of Soviet pop culture that glorified the KGB. And there were a lot of movies and pulp novels about the daring do of deep cover agents in World War II or in the fighting, the Cold War. And he loved the stuff. And in ninth grade, he knocked on the front door of the imposing KGB headquarters in Leningrad and said, I want to work here. And the person who answered the door said, beat it, kid. We don't take walk-ins. And Putin persisted and said, well, if I want to work here when I'm grown up, what do I need to do? And the guy said, you need to get a college degree or serve in the military. And Putin said, well, what kind of degree? And the guy said, go to law school. And that is indeed what Putin threw himself into doing as a high schooler and then got himself into the best school in, in Leningrad, which was definitely uh, not a sure thing for someone with his socioeconomic background. 
Yeah, because I that part of the story is interesting. He he did he is a guy that from a literary standpoint, it's interesting. He's a guy who does come from this uh, this background where you know the the odds are stacked against him, and by determination and force of will and whatever natural talent he possesses, manages to you know claw his way to the top and you know devious underhanded means. You mentioned the the pop culture. This is another thing I didn't know. Um, there's a character named Steerlitz from something called 17 Moments of Spring. Uh, so what is that and why is it important to the story of him? In uh, the course of the ODing on pulp novels about the KGB, Putin, like a lot of Soviet teens, was introduced to this character of uh, Max Otto Steerlitz, who was a made-up character that was who had basically wormed his way into the German high command as a SS officer. And Stierlitz is always in the thick of things as uh, the Nazis are unraveling. And in the early 1970s, a miniseries was aired, which is quite high quality, called 17 Moments of Spring. And basically the country would come to a halt every week when the episode aired of the show. And Brezhnev himself was a huge fan. And there's this the the lead actor in many ways looks like someone like John Hamm from Mad Men mm -hmm. and has that kind of chiseled good looks. And at the very end of the Yeltsin era, when Yeltsin was so erratic and um, unable to perform his duties due to his heavy alcohol abuse, the Kremlin was casting about for a successor and they did these focus groups. And this is what's so interesting is they were trying to find out what are the characteristics that the Russian people most craved in a leader? And they gave them historical antecedents. And everyone picked up on Stierlitz in these focus groups. And they were like, that's the kind of leader we need. And so the Kremlin then tried to find who do we have in our midst who could play that part credibly, who looks, you know, sort of handsome, and we could dress him up as a, you know, a man of great resolve and character, like the fictional Stierlitz. And who else, you know, do we have who would at least protect the Yeltsin family and keep them from harm in the post-presidency period? And they find this guy and they're they're like, yeah, you, you should be that guy. And Putin's like, okay, I'll do that. And for the first several years, you know, almost a, you know eight or so years of his, or four to eight years of his time in office, he lives up to the deal. He doesn't prosecute the Yeltsin people. He doesn't rock the boat too hard. And on the world stage, he sort of is playing this role of like the paint by numbers facsimile of, of Otto Max Strelitz. Yeah, it's really, it's fascinating. That's the guy that he almost models himself after. And then it's a guy, you know, that they want that. You mentioned Yeltsin, and I think this is important, um, how he got into power, which I think was a surprise to most people in the West that they picked this schlub from out of nowhere, um, out of obscurity and, and install him in, in, in these important positions around uh, Yeltsin. But um, it's loyalty. You say in the book, you know, the one thing that, that that he places emphasis on above all else is loyalty. And the Yeltsin family at that time, the daughter um, is his main advisor, and they, they've stolen a lot of money and accumulated a lot of wealth that they're interested in not losing. Um, and how are they going to do this if they're going to get prosecuted and this and that? And, and you know, as you said, Putin doesn't uh, do, he doesn't go after them. He doesn't, he lets them go, basically, even though you know, really, he shouldn't let them go because they've taken all this money. But uh, that begins the period of, um, you know, 
how I see it is just what is it called denationalization and privatization where um, who we now think of as oligarchs, but they're really just people that happen to be, you know, acquaintances of Putin's at the time, you know, somebody that he hung out with in Dresden is now the the CEO of something. I'm sure he's, you know, probably whatever, but I don't think he's like qualified to, to have that job in, in the way that, that we would think of here. Um, and that that's just how it flows. And it goes back to what you were saying before about um, the oligarchs around him and how we here really just want one of the oligarchs to be like, okay, you're done and, you know, defenestrate him, but it's just not going to happen most likely because they just, they don't have power without him. They need him there in order to keep their wealth. Uh, and especially so now that the sanctions have been so biting, because I think a lot of these guys are going to find it hard to operate in the West in a way that five years ago, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have had a problem doing. So, uh, now you met with him. Uh, it was after the the Moscow apartment bombings, right? When you met with yeah. him, like fairly soon after. Yeah, this is an important scene in the book, and it yeah. just bring everybody back to what was going on in late 1999. The White House had been tipped off that Yeltsin intended to make Putin the next president, and we went to meet with Putin in New Zealand. And on the day of um, the main meeting between Yeltsin, I'm sorry, between Putin and Clinton, which I attended, nothing terribly exciting happened. And we were emphasizing, you need to be really cautious with this guy. We don't want him to unravel all the great things that Yeltsin had accomplished. But because of the pre-existing relationship between my boss, Sandy Berger, and Putin, we had a separate meeting and it was just four of us Berger, myself putin and a, a person named igor sechin who has really been the closest aide to putin throughout his career and now runs the state oil company rosneft and as the meeting is about to happen and i'm waiting for Berger and putin to show up there's the apartment bombing in moscow and uh, you know i can't remember the exact number of people who were killed in the bombing but let's say it was dozens of people there had been a wave of these mysterious bombings in September of 1999, and tensions were mounting over uh, efforts in Chechnya to break away from the Russian Federation. This is a Muslim enclave in the North Caucasus region. And when we sat down with Putin a few minutes later after this news of the, the fourth bombing, um, Sandy Berger told Putin, and Sandy Berger and Bill Clinton were just obsessed with the threat posed by al-Qaeda and bin Laden. And Berger said, like, there's no bigger security problem facing our two countries right now than global transnational terrorism. And I think if we do more together, we can deal with this problem. This was two years before 9-11. And there were small indications, not huge, that al-Qaeda was around in the North Caucasus or in other parts of the former Soviet Union. But at that time, the White House was on a essentially a war footing to deal with al-Qaeda. And Berger and Clinton were just completely obsessed with bin Laden. And the war that Russia pursued in Chechnya was horrible in terms of atrocities and human rights abuses, you know, it was similar to what we're seeing in Ukraine. And at some point, just a week or two after this call, Russia went in and invaded. And any notion of doing a lot of cooperation with Russia became basically unthinkable because of the, you know, the unpalatable nature of how Russia dealt with, with the Chechnya situation. Now, there's a lot of thinking that uh, the FSB did those bombings. And I, I, for, I forget the guy's name. There was somebody that 
wrote a whole paper about it, sort of hinting at it and this and that. And uh, you, you refer to it in the book. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think he was behind it? Do you think it just happened and he took advantage of it? Or, or And did what you think then and what you think now, you know, has it changed at all? The most important thing that the bombings achieved was it made the Russian people really worried that the situation in Chechnya was getting out of control and that it would have huge security implications for Russia and for Russia's survival. And it created, um, because Putin seemed so decisive and because Russia was um, seen as being successful in subduing the rebellion, and we can talk about the, the bills that are still coming due from that and the horrible cost, that it created a kind of tailwind for Putin. And I think the most single most important thing is it kind of legitimized him and it created um, a level of acceptance from the Russian people of having a brutal leader. And he's lived up to that in the subsequent two decades in power, as we all know. The question of what the heck happened has never been properly investigated. And the Russian government doesn't show any indication that it will ever look into what actually happened. And there were a lot of weird things that suggested it was not what it was presented to the public at the time. There were lots of conspiratorial people around the Yeltsin family at the time who were capable of doing anything and who were completely, um, you know, who played to that. I can't remember, what was the, was it, what was the movie? There's a, um, uh, a movie about Russian oligarchs that came out in the um, in the 2000s um, that I'm trying to kind of spacing on the name of the movie. It was like Moscow Nights or whatever. But anyways, but okay. there were these kind of devious characters around the Yeltsin family who orchestrated all sorts of things to suit their political purposes. Um, whether or not Putin himself had a direct role and someone sat him down and said, here's what we're going to do and here's how you're going to play it. Um, I don't know. And there's a lot of, I think people take it on faith in the in the West that that's what indeed happened, but I've not seen a smoking gun. Okay. Torsion is the guy that 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 did the investigation, right? Was it that that he was investigating? Or was no, it that's a different, that's another weird thing. Um, so Torsion is the person who conducts the investigation of a massacre of people at oh, right, a, the school, at the school. elementary yeah. school. And Torsion then goes on just, to get to the funny part of the plot, which is you know heavily reflected in the book, he is one of the people the Russian government relies on to build bridges to the Trump family operation and to the Tea Party movement um, and the NRA. So he sort of shows up in the U.S. and presents himself as a gun nut, and then starts you know hanging out in various conservative circles. Yeah. One of the things um, in the book that I liked was the way that you covered the color revolutions. You talked about them before. Some of them I knew about, some of them I didn't. This is after the the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the, you know, the, the independent republics coming up. And Putin looked at all of these as a huge threat, thinking that, oh, my God, something like this is going to happen here. These are all Western NGO, CIA, George Soros things that are happening. And, and obviously, they, you know, the, the, those powers are going to want them to happen here. And as you point out in the book, he seems incapable of believing that the people in the countries can exercise their own free will and stand up against, you know, crappy governments. Um, but give us a little rundown on some of these things heading into the one in Ukraine. 
Yeah, the Russian view of this, and I think it is a cardinal aspect of understanding Putin, understanding why this war in Ukraine is happening, is shaped by a wave of popular uprisings. And the color revolutions, as they're commonly referred to, started in uh, post-Soviet countries, Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, and Ukraine. Um, it's similar to what everyone now thinks of as the Arab Spring, where citizens come out, they call out an authoritative regime, authoritarian regime, and they say, we don't like what you're doing, you're violating our dignity, and we want to say and how the country's ruled, or there's a disputed election, and then it leads to mass protests and a sort of moment where the regime breaks down. And part of what was fun in the book was to do two things. Was one, I looked back at my own role at the White House during the fall of Serbia's leader, Slobodan Milosevic, yeah. who was pushed out after a contested election. And there was a big student movement that organized street demonstrations. But what's interesting is along the way, President Clinton has now said publicly that he had authorized a covert action program to help bring this about. And that it was on account of Milosevic's involvement in crimes against humanity and genocide in, in the Balkans. Um, and I don't think it's it's hard to, to guess that the Russians were wise to our involvement. I don't know that for a fact, but it seems probable. And then when they saw, for example, activists who'd been involved in the Serbian student movement showing up on the streets of Kiev in 20, 2004, for the Orange Revolution. This is the first of the three times Putin has totally blown it in Ukraine. But in 2004, they tried to steal an election on behalf of a pro-Russian figure. And then again, in 2014, um, they tried to crack down on uh, civil society in Ukraine and led to the, uh, the Revolution of Dignity. At every stage, the Russians are convinced that it's the US and our malfeasance that underlies what people are doing. And they deny, as you said a second ago, that average people can just take stuff into their own hands and that average people have thresholds that when you cross them, they won't put up with anymore. Um, it's very different in Russia. And this is a key theme that comes out in the book where Russians just don't have that in their frame of reference anymore and they feel demotivated or they feel intimidated or they feel intense fear about what the state will do to them if they speak up but in places like ukraine we've seen like people are willing to put it all on the line people volunteer to go fight in this war people have you know have really gone to the streets multiple times to demand accountability from their government and in russia it's different and it's it's an interesting question of like why you know to what extent that's something that putin has brought about you know that level of fear and demotivation or it's something that's more endemic in the way the country's been ruled for for the last thousand or so yeah. years probably a little of both he's he's you know jumping on this thing and 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 using it to his purposes which is what he does i think i he seems like that's what he does he's when presented with an opportunity he exploits it just like with the you know the election stuff here like i i think you you say in the book later on about you know he didn't he didn't invent social media he didn't create the wedge issues in the west he didn't do a lot of these things but you know he saw where the opportunities were to exploit them and he exploited them which is on some level his job as as our great adversary right um another thing in the book that was interesting which i did not know is is that george soros i guess finances some of these ngos and putin hates him and see soros as his big nemesis uh 
it's interesting just that Trump and all the MAGA people also see Soros as their great nemesis. Gee, I wonder where that came from. That's all. <laughs> yeah, no, and you see this as well, like with the the embrace of anti-LGBT rhetoric. Um, and there's a lot of opportunism. And so just to just to amplify what you're saying about Putin being this great opportunist, everyone now in the West assumes that Vladimir Putin is a dyed-in-the-wool uh, social conservative and a you know a promoter of family values. It's all largely artifice. And the reason he did that was in 2011, 2012, you had a wave of street demonstrations in big cities. There were uh, people were angry about a fraudulent election. And it was the main beneficiaries of Putin's rule who came out and said, we don't want to be subjects, we want to be citizens, and you can't just keep humiliating us this way. And Putin used things like the Pussy Riot case, where you have people who look different than Joe Sixpack Russia, and the people who are on the streets did not look like Joe Sixpack Russia either, and tries to say at the same time, like, I'm anti-LGBT, I'm pro-family, I'm pro-Orthodox church, and he wears this whole, like, moral conservative stuff as a basically a way of being a wedge issue in Russia and saying that anyone who wants democracy or doesn't support me is un-Russian and you're a weirdo and, you know, the sooner you and your paymasters like George Soros beat it, the better off Russia will be. And now, you know, some in the West, and this happened pretty early on, um, you know, people from the evangelical movement, people from the Tea Party, they didn't really understand or do enough due diligence to know who they were dealing with. And they all just thought, oh, yeah, Putin's one of us and didn't ask too many questions. And the Trump you know, phenomenon was filled with people you know, who similarly kind of took on faith that the Russians are who they say they are. It's gotten even further than that. And that in that speech he gave, I don't know now, what is it, a month ago um, when he said that it's not just anti-Russian, it's pure Satanism, all of this stuff that, that he, he's he's equating you know, Ukraine and and. Hollywood, you know, Western values, uh, Beverly Hills values, even, I suppose, as, uh, you know, pure Satanism, that, 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 that speech was batshit. Uh, yeah, but, 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 but to give Putin credit, um, he was anti-Satan before being anti-Satan was cool. And there's a section <laughs> in the book where I mentioned that he said in 2004 that he was fighting Satan. So he's, you know, this is, again, it, it connects back to, Joe Sixpack Russia, anything that looks like it's defiling the church and piety, he wants to be on the right side of that um, and to kind of wrap himself in it as if he's the czar. And if you remember from your Russian history classes in college, the czar was always kind of co-identified as the head of the church. Right. And where the church ended and the state began was never, you know, it was a very permeable line. It's, I mean, czar means Caesar, you know, it's it's from the same root word. And the reason that Constantine the Great, to go back to ancient Rome, decided to make Christianity the, the law of the land or the religion of the land was to unite everybody under one banner, knowing that it's a large disparate empire with lots of different people. And the only way to get them together, they needed to have some shared commonality. And I think that's probably Putin's doing the same thing in, in Russia, which is, you know, again, uh, there's lots of different parts of it that are not ethnically Russian. So he's got a lot of people to sort of keep under his heel. Um, why do you think he's so obsessed with Ukraine? What is it about Ukraine specifically that 
because it, it the 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 history of this i think you know when people look back on everything uh, both in terms of trump also and the republican party but in terms of putin as well it's all about ukraine it seems like so what is it about ukraine that that makes putin so nutty ukraine has been as i said earlier the biggest black mark on putin's time in office he's screwed it up royally and each time it gets worse like the first screw up in 2004 second in 2014 and now today he like a lot of russians has had a horribly hard time ever believing ukraine is a real country and buys into a notion that because it's not a real country the people who are there are just essentially my you know the equivalent of the people who live in russia and but for a little bit of geopolitical hocus pocus they really should be back under my wing um one of the things that made stuff more complicated was that in 2008 the outgoing bush 43 administration pursued a declare a declaration on behalf of nato that two post-soviet countries ukraine and georgia would eventually join nato and it was fiercely resisted by particularly germany france and italy and their opposition was insurmountable. Um, but for the Russian side, it created at least the theoretical possibility that someday you could have the US basically leading a military alliance that's right up against Russia's border. And for the better part of like 300, 400 years, the thing that czars and commissars and now people in the post-communist era have all pursued is they want to have as much geopolitical buffer and cushion between themselves and their adversaries. And for the most part, that was a, that's been the North Star of Russian foreign policy going back hundreds of years. And it's a big part of why Russia is so expansionist, is it needs to acquire as much territory because it doesn't have oceans or mountain ranges and things like that to separate it from a hostile outside world. What seems to have happened in this particular case, though, is that as the uh, result of the first wave of the Ukraine war in 2014, the West gave Ukraine a lot of help, and we gave them a lot of assistance. We helped uh, professionalize their military. There were a lot of intelligence or security-type activities going on throughout that period because we were helping the Ukrainians fend off this Russian invasion. Um, and it was, I think, Putin's mind as the opportunist that like, that's not good. And it's just going to be like a mushroom that grows and grows and grows and grows. And it's in a, I wrote an academic paper, a scholarly paper about a year ago with one of my colleagues, Eugene Rumer. And we said, this is the biggest piece of unfinished business. And it was, last point I'll make, the collapse of the US-backed government in Afghanistan in summer of 2021, the departure of Angela Merkel, and the fact that the Zelensky government in 2021 was a total mess that made Putin think like, this is my moment. I need to do this now. I can get it done. I'll whack the Ukrainians really hard. And there's nothing the West is going to be able to do to stop me. And he went all in. And it was a it was a bet. I think he didn't realize how foolhardy it would be. And it, it's you know, just blown up spectacularly. Thanks for saying those things, because I was, you know, one of the questions that I have and a lot of people have is why now? Why didn't he do this when Trump was president? Because it would have been easier for him, at least in terms of the U.S. response, because Trump was going to maybe not be so forthcoming with sending aid. And, you know, but Trump spent four years basically trying to destroy NATO and Biden reassembled it in about in about a week and a half and made it about as strong as it's ever been. Um, so, yeah, so it's 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 the Afghanistan thing. It's Angela Merkel leaving and uh, what was the other? There was three things you just mentioned. It was the Zelensky government was a mess. Right. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause that, that's a guy that, you know, I have a good friend from, from college who lives in Kiev and he was like, this guy wasn't even going to get reelected. Like he was, he was out, you know, it wasn't working. And now it's like, he he's in that same stratum with like Mandela and stuff. It's really remarkable. Absolutely. You know, what, what's happened there. So let, let's stay with that for a minute. Like we're recording this. It's November 14th. This is probably going to run in I don't know, two weeks or something like that. So God knows what's going to happen in the next in the next two weeks. Alexander, um, what's his name? Duke, how does he say his name? Duga. Yeah, has come out and uh, last week and said that the war is such a catastrophe that Putin should be killed, which is probably not a great thing for your brain to say. What do you think is going to happen with, with Ukraine, with the war and, and with Putin and Russia? No way knowing um, would be the easy answer. This war is so <laughs> dynamic and unpredictable. I do think it will go on for a long time and that people really have to be braced for a brutal, nasty war that is both dynamic and volatile and where the bloodletting could go on on a sort of open-ended basis. I also think we have, as you know, there are two parts. One, because we're American, we always think there may be a solution and that you know the US can kind of fix things it's important to remember that in the balkans the you know the most recent wars in europe and uh bosnia and then kosovo the reason those wars came to an end is cuz the US intervened militarily and then forced the parties to come together and accept a settlement biden has made it really clear that he is not going to go to war in ukraine and that the risk reason for that is cuz of the risk of a direct military confrontation with russia which would be devastating for you know, the world as we know it and could lead to a nuclear catastrophe. Unless that were to happen, I think there's just going to be a really, really high uh, hill to climb on any kind of diplomatic effort, both because the Ukrainians think they have the momentum, as well as the fact that they're facing a quasi-genocidal onslaught. And that yeah. people of Ukraine now, having looked at the atrocities and crimes that have been committed, are not in a position to be able to trust Russia not to do this again. And so it, it just seems like any Ukrainian leader who gets up in front and says, hey, it's a time for tough compromises and here's how we're going to cut the baby in half or whatever, like they're not going to, that, that's just not going to be tenable. Ukraine is a democracy ultimately. And president of Ukraine has to be in touch with where public sentiment is. Um, the other part of this is that there's no sign that the Russian side has given up on maximalist goals and Putin's maximalist goals. We just need to keep, you know, having these stapled in front of us on the wall are the dismantlement of Ukraine as an independent sovereign country. He wants regime change. He wants people like Zelensky dead or out of the picture. And then lastly, he wants to gobble it up. And, you know, in this day and age, if a country like Russia were to do that, you have to wonder what the lessons are and the teachings are for other leaders in other parts of the world and whether that's a world any of us would feel safe living in. I don't think we would. But it leaves us in this pretty miserable situation of basically saying, well, then we just got to do everything we can to help the Ukrainians beat the Russians back. And that's, yeah. that's the boat we're in. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that, you know, I think Biden has played this really smartly so far. I think he's you know, the, the timing of it all has been really good. I think the way that he chose to do the economic sanctions and bring the hammer down that way was smart. Um, although so far it has not had the intended effect, I think, which is of, of of causing enough unrest in Russia to really make Putin think twice about about what he's doing. I think I wonder about the 
the whole nuclear thing, I mean, just because he has nuclear weapons is no reason to let him go willy-nilly and do whatever he wants. Obviously, we have to draw the, there's a line that we draw somewhere. I think with NATO, the line would be there. If he invades a NATO country, then we're obligated by treaty to to hit back. But um, you know, the 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 death toll on these war crimes and atrocities in Ukraine are so awful. But well, we can't just sit around because of the the nuclear threat either. Because, you know, would we just let him roll into Paris? Would we let him roll into New York because he has nuclear weapons? No. But what do you think about that? Because part of me thinks, do these things even work? Like, the rest of the Russian military sucks. Like, is it even a fear? I mean, I, I not to be, like, blasé about something that could, you know, end life as we know it on the planet, but I, I wonder how great these systems really are. No, that's part of what one of the big mysteries is about all the nuclear saber rattling is does Vladimir Putin have uh, an agenda here, which is to rattle us? I, I think he does. I think he wants to make Western leaders. He, he lives rent free in Western leaders heads. And that's by dint of being who he is and the fact that he is a formidable guy. Um, and the fact that when a leader of a nuclear power threatens to use them, we have to we can't just ignore or pretend that's not a serious issue. Um, at the same time, the question of what would you do with nuclear weapons and how would that help Russia prevail in this maximalist set of goals that I outlined a second ago, it's not clear. Like It's not clear what nuclear weapons would actually achieve, but it's certainly aimed at creating cracks in the US-European coalition that supports Ukraine. And I'm sure if you went and you asked people in Germany or other countries, are you worried, more worried now about nuclear war? They would all say yes. And that yeah. could have long-term negative reverberations. Um, it's not enough to prevent the thing every day that's happening, which is the total shredding of Russia's military power, conventional military power on the battlefield in Ukraine. So Putin's making a series of trial and error bets right now, thinking if I just do this thing, maybe I can get the US to crack, maybe I can get Europe to crack. The biggest thing he can probably do and where we should expect him to be the most uh, persistent is try to get a new U.S. president elected in 2024, and that's that's the biggie. Because if you know if that happens, we're in a different world. Especially if that person happens to be Donald Trump. Yeah, I'm not I'm not as worried about Trump getting reelected as I as I was maybe a, a few months ago, but uh, a few weeks ago even. But yeah, no, it's it it is his thing, and he has to the the complete. Uh, you know they're good at that. They're good at hacking an election fuckery. They're not much good at, at much else, I don't think. But uh, in terms of you know tactics and te and techniques, they're they're good at, to give them credit. I mean they're formidable on you know on account of their ability to absorb pain. And I yeah. haven't seen it, but like the the head of the leader of uh, NATO, the Secretary General of NATO today is out with comments just saying like don't underestimate Russia's ability to endure and the fact that they have a significant military and resources that they're willing to throw at this problem means that they're not done. They are not done in Ukraine. Yeah. What did Stalin say? Like, yeah, the Russian women will just make more exactly. soldiers. Yeah. It was Marshal Zhukov who said it. But yeah, women okay. will okay. give birth to more. Yeah. Yeah. The, I saw one time years ago, somebody made a graphic of the number of losses in World War II based on country and stuff. And it, it was when it got to Russia and the number of people lost, it was jarring it was like looking at jupiter next to like mars and venus and the your your, your eyes go oh my god i mean it's really you know we, we were talking about the the, the siege of uh, of leningrad before and, and uh you know the losses that they've endured are uh you know it was horrifying 
Um, so yeah, that is a thing. Now, I guess we can end here with the, with this question, like looking at it from Putin's standpoint, he's getting older. Certainly his head is getting larger. I don't know what's going on there. Um, he's certainly getting more paranoid. At one point in the book, you suggest he could have retired right after Trump got elected and been like, and, and Brexit happened and been like, okay, I'm good. I can get out now. Now he really can't, as you say in the book, it's, it's, it's easier for him. He sleeps more peacefully inside the Kremlin than outside it. But what could he do now if he wanted to leave? Like what's, what's the best case scenario for us in the West there in terms of Russia and somebody else taking over, which eventually somebody else will, whether it's 20 years from now as, as his idol, the Singapore guy was, was there until he was 90. But um, what do you see happening and who might you see, you know, coming in to replace him? Part of how Vladimir Putin stays in power is by making sure that the landscape is completely wiped clean of any alternatives. And there's a word for that in Russian, which, uh, you know, undergirds their political strategy, biz alternativeness, the lack of alternatives. And that prevents anyone from consolidating, even Alexei Navalny, um, as we know, who's, you know, been the target of an assassination attempt and who's now languishing in a Russian prison. Even he never really got more than 20% support. So the very fact that there are no faces on the scene, there are no up-and-comers, and there's no mechanism for putting someone like that forward makes me skeptical that the scenario you just sketched is in the offing. There are plenty of people who are hoping and praying it happens, um, but I think we need to be more realistic about Putin's staying power. And as you said at the beginning, he ain't got no exit strategy. The only exit strategy yeah. for him in a country like this is he's worried about ending up on trial in The Hague, which is what happened to Milosevic, and he's worried about someone taking him out. And so loyalty and loyalism are the order of the day, intimidation and fear. And anyone who's unhappy, you leave the border open and you guarantee more of your own staying power by telling well-to-do Russians or worldly cosmopolitan Russians, you can go drive a cab somewhere in the Western world if you want, or you know, apply your luck elsewhere. Um, and that's that's helped keep them in power. I don't see... Putin having a long-term plan and a lot of what you're talking about, about a succession, really does require you know, serious planning and thinking about who you can trust and who's a loyalist and who's going to honor some sort of bargain to protect Putin's well-being and all the ill-gotten gains of the people he cares about. Um, it, it just feels to me like science fiction. The final, though, you know, kind of caveat on all this is like, Russia is really unpredictable. And, you know, we shouldn't take for granted that Putin gets to match Lee Kuan Yew, his idol, the former leader of Singapore, and serving out, you know, until he's 90. But, um, but you know, things can still happen that are unpredictable, but we just shouldn't be pinning all of our hopes on, you know, the thing I say, like a meteorite landing on his motorcade as it leaves the Kremlin. Like, that's just not <laughs> the basis for Western policy. If he, if he, had a heart attack and, and dropped dead tomorrow. Um, Cause this is also a possibility. Like he's not, there, there are rumors that he's not well physically. That's probably bullshit, but you know, what would happen to you? I mean, it, it, somebody in the inner circle, like a Patrushev, somebody like that taking over or worse, there'd be some weird civil war kind of thing. I, I don't know. Well, I'm skeptical about the health rumors and my former boss, um, William Burns, who's now the director of the CIA had this line of about, 
Vladimir Putin is entirely too healthy. And I think that we should all kind of keep that in mind when we speculate about these things. The formal procedures are likely to create a real mess and power struggle because if the head of state dies, power then shifts to the prime minister. The prime minister is someone without any great political standing. He's the former Russian equivalent of the head of the IRS and is a sort of faceless technocrat without any base or uh, following. And so he's supposed to call elections, I think, within 90 days. And you could easily imagine some orchestrated attempt to find somebody who can be the guy to keep it all together. Um, but at this point, everybody's in the inner circle around Putin is just banking on Putin's healthy lifestyle and three or four hours a day of exercise to keep, you know, keep, keep on keeping on. Uh, it's really a... Uh... It'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. That's for sure. So, um, Andrew Weiss. Uh, oh, are you on Twitter? I mean, Twitter might also not exist in, in by the time this runs. But uh, yeah, Twitter. You can you can you can check me out at Andrew S Weiss. All one word. My middle initial is S for Scott. Um, and I'm pretty active on Twitter. Not just talking about the book, but everyday stuff coming out of Russia. And I work at a think tank, and so I have this really great amazing set of colleagues at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace who write tons of material every day about what's happening in the region. Okay. Um, and the book is called Accidental Czar, The Life and Times of Vladimir Putin. Again, Life and I'm Lies. Not... Life and Lies, Greg. Life and Lies. I, I can't even read my own writing. I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fantastic book. And, you know, it, it. people listen to this know, like I wrote Dirty Rubles in 2018 to try to like succinctly explain what was happening. Um, in a way to provide context and narrative. And this is the same kind of idea of that. You get a really nice sense of who Putin is, what he's all about um, in a in a in a way that's fun to read and 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 look at because the art again is really fantastic. So Andrew Weiss, thanks so much for taking the time today. Great to meet you. Really great meeting you, Greg. Thank you. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa, Zarina Zabriskie, Marie Kost, and Martha Akuna provided the introduction in Ukrainian, French, and Spanish, respectively. Voice talent is by Stephanie St. John, Tally Briggs, Michelle Cantor, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hockey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail Substack with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the column and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. And until next time, we shall prevail.